Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Scouting for Growth. I am Sabine van der Linden, and today I have the privilege of hosting a leader who has mastered the art of alleviating real-world challenges with some of the most sophisticated and complex technologies. From commanding roles in the U.S. Navy to pioneering cybersecurity practices at Google and leading the vanguard in API code automation, our guest's journey is nothing short of exceptional. Terence Bennett, CEO of Dream Factory Software, brings with him a decades of worthwhile insights into cybersecurity, adversarial simulations, and API advancements. He is a veteran, both in serving his country and in protecting digital domains. Passionate about public service, Terence is dedicated to giving back, be it through the American Red Cross or by supporting veterans grappling with PTSD. Today, we are going to delve deep into Terence's illustrious career, the current cyber threat landscape, and the role of emerging technologies in shaping our digital future. Whether you are a CEO, a CTO, or someone aspiring to break into the cybersecurity arena, this episode promises to be a trove of valuable insights. So, Without further ado, let's unravel the intricacies of the digital world with Terence Bennett. Let's crack the cybersecurity code. Welcome, Terence. Hi, Terence. Thank you so much for joining me on Scouting for Growth. Hi, Sabine. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Terence, let's go into a bit of background. So, you know, what got you into cyber? You know, it's uh, a good question. I, you know, I was building computers in high school, and uh, I've always loved technology. I've always loved kind of taking things apart. And uh, if you spend enough time with computers, I think you just kind of figure out uh, there's there's a whole other world of of sort of the misapplication of of computers and technology. And so, um. I remember kind of uh, spending some time on on some of these cybersecurity quote unquote hacking forums. This would have been like early two thousands, um, and and really just having a lot of fun with it. Um, and then with that, getting into um, you know, early early sort of web development, HTML, and just kind of learning about different ways you can um, kind of use the internet in ways it wasn't necessarily intended or whatever else. You know, I, I actually didn't study cyber, uh, cybersecurity or computer science. I studied uh, at the Naval Academy, engineering and economics. Um, but, I, you know, 10 years later, I came back around to cybersecurity as a uh, as a professional. So took a little bit of a break in the middle, but it's, it's a, sort of always been a passion of mine. 
Yeah. But I know you have been in the Navy, right? And you also have worked with Google, uh, the red team. And I'd love to hear what that team is about. I'm sure the listeners would love to understand what you, you did for this uh, amazing mammoth company. And what were some of the most interesting projects and exercises you have participated into as you were uh, moved from, you know, the Navy and being a military into into Google um, and helping them probably shape really interesting things as well. Yeah, yeah. So I spent four years at, at Google. Um, the uh, the first two years were on the cloud team. So learn, learning more about the company and sort of the, the background and the infrastructure. And then I spent two years on there on the red team. Um, you know, I, I joined it pretty early on. It was still kind of in its growing phases and um, got to work on a bunch of interesting projects. But at its core, if you think of most cybersecurity is about taking a set of standards, a set of known best practices and applying them throughout an organization. And then um, a lot of the attention actually comes to the the audit, right? The checking of those, of those standards across an enterprise. And so... Um, you know, for good or bad, a lot of the, um, a lot of like the cybersecurity workforce is actually based around the auditing, right, and and application of of those standards. Um, red teaming is about is about simulating an adversary as they go about the, the process of trying to get into, you know, a network, into a computer, into into a facility. Um, early red teaming actually was started, I believe. It was within the Navy or within the military, U.S. military, um, trying to trying to sneak onto U.S. military bases, right? So it's like you, you build this big wall, you put barbed wire on top, you build a big gate. Um, let's take let's take then a group of people who are very skilled at getting into places they shouldn't be, yeah. and see how do they actually approach this problem? Because because kind of like the imagine online, like they might just go go around the wall, right? Um, and so there's a lot of that going on in cybersecurity as well. And and as cybersecurity as a field is sort of matured, you'll find um, very specific signatures to different types of attackers in the way they go about actually doing that. And so um, as a red team, you very quickly end up in this situation where you you become a sparring partner of sorts. You become uh, it becomes a cat and mouse game be with between yourselves and between the, the team that's defending. Right. Uh, we, we refer to them as the blue team um, and within organizations, you know, um, the security, the the sort of home security team is typically referred to as blue team. And so you go about trying to get into a, in, in this case, we're getting into Google's network, right, from the outside, from without the any sort of established foothold. And we're trying to mimic what we believe to be a real life adversarial campaign. Right. And so we'll actually base it around current events. We'll base it around what we what's going on in the world and what we think nation, maybe nation state actors would actually want to do or what, what, what they want access to and how they might go about it. Right. And then with that mindset, we can then look at established what we call TTPs, tactics, techniques and procedures that are common from that group. And we can actually mimic them within the exercise. And, you know, you're really good at this when the blue team if they find you, which often they they almost always well they they do it doesn't mean they stop you but that's sort of a separate conversation. <laughs> if they find traces of your attack, they think it's real. 
that's how you know you're 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 getting pretty close to to success. And so what you can do is you can actually, you know, if you're all you're doing is finding bugs in code, it's a very 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 expensive way of doing that, right? There's probably much better ways uh, that that you can do that in a scalable way. But if you're actively simulating the adversary and you're finding unknown holes or gaps in in uh, typically it's around sort of policy, right? And you're making the blue team think that this is a real attack and you're giving them real world um, or as close to real world experience. Then, then there's a lot of value to be, to be gained by the company and by the organization. And so do, you know, you are Google doing this, are big companies, international, you know, corporates applying the same techniques within their enterprises? A lot of them are. Um you know, there's in at DEFCON, there's a group of us that get together. Um, I, I can just say that like all the all the big tech big tech companies have people at these conferences. So mm-hmm. red teaming is definitely something you see see across the industry. It's an incredibly valuable way to take a small group of of uh, security engineers and and apply them to a group to a you know to add value. Because um, what you often find is very secure code very secure infrastructures. Everyone's actually doing what they're supposed to be doing, but it's assembled in a way that leaves a big gap. Okay. And so if you can identify that, right, yourself, um, this is kind of the only way to, to really do that. Interesting. So what yeah. are the skills you need to, to, to do what you do at the level you are doing it, right? Because I hear a lot about organization, you know, recruiting spy, former spy, or um, looking for people who were themselves, uh, you know, hackers uh, to actually mimic the behavior. So what are the skills we need to actually be at your level and be able to do the type of things you do, Terrence? Well, there's a, there's a diverse set of skills, right? I, I'm not actually, I'm not sort of one of the quote unquote hackers, right? Um, I was a program manager in the team. So yep. I helped them really think through the process of, building the exercise as a former intelligence officer, pretty deep understanding of a lot of these adversarial adversaries and, and their capabilities um, and, and a larger sort of understanding of the geopolitics and what, what might be kind of a, a trigger, what might be um, something big enough that, to cause, you know, an adversary to think about uh, an attack. Um, so you, you really need a, a group of people of, of, of a diverse set of skills, right? Uh, of course, you do need very talented security engineers, some of them do come from quote unquote sort of a hacking background. A lot of them actually are are white hat hackers, right? They 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 probably never you know meaningfully broken the law or meaningfully you know done done the sort of the the, the type of hacking you think about in the movies, but they're incredibly experienced and, and thoughtful about um, how these systems work and how they're intertwined, right? And often it comes from a deep sense of curiosity in in having understood the systems, always wondered. What if I could do this? What would actually happen? Like, and then wanting to actually explore that. And so, you know, our Google's Red team and a lot of others started with one engineer going to their manager saying, "Hey, I think, I think there's a really big vulnerability here. Can you give me like a few days to work on it and play around with it? Because it's outside of the scope of any one team asking questions about it. It's sort of like what you might consider an unknown unknown, and." Uh, and I like to just kind of I like to to pull the string on this and figure out what's going on. And you do that once, and you do it twice, and you do it three times, and organizations see, oh my gosh, 
we need somebody who's really looking at the what no one else is looking at. Um, so you've got the engineers, you've got people like me on the sort of management side. Uh, you've got um, a diverse set of folks who are helping manage the actual the adjudication of these of these bugs, right? Like sometimes the the bugs are these massive systemic organizational uh, configurations, right? And it takes multiple teams in coordination moving all together. You know, talk about hundreds of engineers to make the changes necessary to close that gap, right? So it's great to identify the, the problem. Sometimes fixing the problem can take, you know, hundreds of engineers, right? And, uh, and, a, and a massive amount of work. So, but, but, you know, you're not, if you're not fixing the things that are found by the red team, then what's the point of it all, right? So it takes a lot, a lot of work, a lot, a lot of different hats for sure. So tell me, uh, Terrence, you know, what do you do at Dream Factory Software? What, what is the premise of the company? And uh, yeah, tell us about your role there. Yeah, absolutely. So Dream Factory was a sort of a almost poetic kind of combinations combination of my background from the Navy and defense um, to with Google because um, Dream Factory is an innovative technology called an API generation platform that allows for generating APIs in a very very unique and, and powerful way. Um, it's really an automation tool at its heart, and a lot of large organizations with a lot of developers. Um, have the have the, uh, the sort of luxury, if you will, of being able to throw a lot of engineers on projects like API, creating APIs, and but the government and and defense defense specifically often doesn't right. They really struggle with both um, attracting and retaining engineers, and so we're working hard to bring this technology to the public sector. We've had a lot of customers actually find us via Google search, which, if you've done any work with the government, you know that they're typically not buying software via Google. Um, and then we've got a lot, of, a lot of large enterprises, uh, large tech companies, large banks, insurance companies, um, because what Dream Factory allows you to do is connect a diverse set of systems, everything from 1970s IBM systems and modern um, you know, data, data warehouses like Snowflake. You can connect into these databases. You can map that, that data layer, that database schema forward into an API schema. And in a matter of seconds, generate live APIs that are secure with role-based access and API keys. And so... It's um, like I said, it's sort of this blend of all my interests between public sector and in cloud and security, because because um, we're able to sort of through automation bring this technology to uh, to customers' environments very very quickly uh, in a really secure way. So um, hopefully, I was able to kind of talk around that. It's it's a complex tool. If you're not if you're not a developer, it might sort of go over your head. So I'm trying to kind of dumb it down a little bit for the audience. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's helpful to understand um, what you're doing. And APIs, we are in an API world now where, you know, whether it's small, you know, I work with small companies and big companies and helping them to collaborate and partner with one another. So an API strategy is always very uh, important for both sides to be able to work together. What do you feel is the biggest challenge when you think about uh, building those API strategies and enabling organization to build a partnership ecosystem and work uh, with one another to actually achieve better outcome, you know, service the customer better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I just spent, you know, I, I was actually preparing for a presentation this week at API World Conference. So I've been spending a lot of time in the Postman 2023 um, report, report of the API, which is this broad annual survey. And I can, so I can tell you exactly what the challenges are, right? The challenges are 
first and foremost, having enough people um, and, the, and the right with the right skills to actually build APIs. And what's fascinating is um, you, you, you've got this sort of public facing set of APIs, which account for 14% of the, the actual total number of APIs that teams are building. Um, and in some cases, they account for half or three quarters of a company's revenue. But they're also building a, a diverse set of private APIs in the back end. And a private API is just an API that where you are both the the receiver and the um, the giver and the receiver, right? You're you're sending data to yourself across systems, across architectures, and that accounts for sixty one percent of APIs. And so, what we perceived is that you've got a very very valuable set of teams, API development teams, that are have a coveted set of skills around API design. Where they, and that, those skills should really be dedicated on the public APIs, the partner APIs that are generating revenue directly. And those those skills are being sort of spread like peanut butter across all the different APIs, the six, including the 61% of APIs that are private. And so, you know, for, for us, we see that um, a lot of our customers are, are taking a different approach and they're applying API generation, this automation tool set to, to building private APIs and doing so, doing so securely and allows them to then apply those those valuable resources, the, the the skills around API design specifically to the the public facing API. So, um, in short, just kind of summarize that you've got this ecosystem of APIs is growing so rapidly. There's so much attention on it. There's just not enough people to go across all the projects, right? And so, the the problem is either things fall behind schedule, they don't get delivered on time, so loss of revenue, or things are getting done haphazardly and quickly and maybe the proper security controls aren't being applied um and so like you would with a lot of tools or like like a lot of different domains if you can apply automation to certain tasks you can you can free up hands to to work on those that are to the, the more you know high priority projects yeah we see that a lot with uh, ai now in generative ai we were talking about automation a lot but with that comes risk and so what I uh, often hear, you know, now corporations are working with a number of clouds, you know, the public cloud and the private cloud, edge computing, and then you're actually leveraging those API and this AI, and you need to make sure your environment is very secure. Uh, mm -hmm. Because as you build new assets, you just need to make sure you're not building and bringing more threats within your organization. So when we look at current threats and landscape, what are some of the latest cyber threat or attacks enterprises should be aware of actually, Terrence? What are the things which you see keep enterprises awake at night uh, from a cyber threat viewpoint? I would, um, it's a great question. And I'd say that the, the trend is uh, the same it has been, it's just accelerating. So ransomware attacks, as you mentioned, are are one of the primary um, are the sort of you know eight hundred pound gorilla in the room when it comes to threats. And really, what a ransomware is, ransomware attack is, is taking the the penetration of a network in an environment and just and just monetizing that or weaponizing it, right? Weaponizing it to monetize it. Um, and so, as we see organizations accelerating through um, you know digitization, monetization strategies. They're connecting more and more data. They're connecting more and more systems, and systems that used to be maybe kind of offline from a traditional, you know, uh, attack surface standpoint are now kind of fair game, right? They're they're increasingly available as part of this larger network, and you can't avoid that, right? Like you need to connect your systems. You need to 
you need to build integrations across your enterprise because every team needs data from other teams. They need to be talking, they need to be integrating, right? Um, so, so you've got you've got the same threat, but an increasingly expansive attack surface and increasingly valuable data, intellectual property that's available via the larger network. A, B, you've got the the primary ways in which ransomware attacks begin, where the foothold in an attack begins, is becoming more sophisticated via tools like ChatGPT. Now. Anybody can write, write an incredibly sophisticated and thoughtful and targeted email convincing someone to click on a link or open a document that they shouldn't. And it used to be um, often the most coveted skill set in one of these organizations, these, these criminal attacker organizations, was someone who spoke really, really good English or under, understood the rules of grammar, right? I, I'm sort of guilty of, of not knowing my grammar probably as well as I should, but I, I lean heavily on ChatGPT to help me find those little kind of typos, right? To find the the uh, the verb tenses or whatever they are. And so if as a native speaker, I need ChatGPT to write a coherent email, um, think of how much that helps somebody who, you know, some of these groups, right? Who are non-native speakers, because because these these attacks are originating typically outside of the United States or attack, they're originating in, in Eastern Europe or wherever else. And so, so you've got much more sophisticated um, attacks on the front end, right? Phishing attacks are the number one way that these 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 um, compromises begin, and you got more and more data, more and more intellectual property available to be sort of locked up via ransomware attacks. So, um, so yeah, the, the 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 threat isn't changing; it's evolving slowly. It's not these aren't revolutions in sort of in in cybersecurity threats. It's really kind of evolutionary, but it's but it's you know it's it's growing. Mm, interesting, interesting. So what would be some of the best practices we should consider to prevent, detect, respond to those attacks, actually, Terrence? Uh, because they're here every every day, you know, I train my team constantly to uh, know how I would communicate with them, where I, sh I will never communicate through. And so it's about also, you know, coaching your team members to actually be aware of how, you know, attacker may come into the enterprise as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so enterprises have a diverse set of risks and I would lean heavily on your CISO or, you know, someone that CISSP certified to, to think through that. But the, the key way to think about it is an attacker first has to get onto the network. They have to first get onto somebody's computer and then onto the network. And so if you can stop them there, you can stop a lot of attacks. Now, it, it also, that doesn't mean you don't need all the other tools to monitor your existing network, right? You need intrusion protection system, intrusion detection. You need monitoring on your network. You need, you know, to be make sure that all your data is both um, encrypted in, in flight, right? As it's being sent, but also encrypted at rest, right? All, all these sort of best practices. But the largest threat on any network is the person behind the, the keyboard, right? And the primary way that malware is sent, really the only way, is via email. In some cases, maybe text message, right? But it's almost all email. So in some ways, cybersecurity hasn't changed much in 10 years or 20 years, right? Because this is what we've been talking about this whole time. But but the tools for defense have gotten a lot better. And um you know, I, I am very biased. I've spent I spent four years at Google. I'm really impressed with the, the steps they've taken. Um, 
So I can speak very specifically to the Google ecosystem, the Google Workspace ecosystem and how to secure that. I know Microsoft has a lot of the same same controls, but I would encourage everyone, or at least you know the the people with with very privileged access, to use something called a a Yubico key, right, or or a security key. And what you can do is you can effectively lock down your email and the surrounding sort of uh, systems of your email, you know, within that ecosystem. So, so calendar, drive, um, and all the other different sort of tools associated with email, you can lock those down. So nobody can access your account without this key. Um, because if you sort of take a step back and you think about how do we typically authenticate, we think authenticate through an email and a password, that email is known, right? It's all over the internet. Everyone knows it. So already one of the two things to authenticate you is known. So the password's the only thing that's keeping you. Now, you know, two-factor authentication via an app, app is, is good, but there's a ton of different ways that that can be targeted, right? What we found within Google is use of a security key is the gold standard for securing a network. And so if you want to be able to just lean on an existing standard that Google pioneered and spent billions of dollars, I don't know how much money, but a lot of money, you know, developing and and uh, and perfecting. I just encourage organizations to go wholesale into the security key, um, uh, you know, um, into the use of security keys as a way to lock things out. Yeah, Yubico key. I mean, that's the way, right? They are little devices we put on the side of your laptop as you showed me uh, before and uh, they actually not they can be big but they can be really small um and and pretty much you know not even bother i would say you know one with a handbag or you know it's actually very very um easy to put but also easy to transport as well but what would be your view on how to train employees to identify and avoid some of the threats? You know, you mentioned phishing, uh, malware, um, ransomware. How do we train our employee to be a little bit more aware of those as well? Yeah, it's um, it's a really good question. I think first you have to talk about it, right? So you should probably have, organizations should have like a, at least once a year kind of cybersecurity stand down where they get all the employees come together and they, you talk about, um, cybersecurity and why it's important for the organization. And there's a lot of really good training out there now um, that didn't exist just a few years ago. My organization uses something called Wiser, right? But there's a ton of these different platforms out yeah. there. And what they, they there's a lot of things they can do. Um, one of which is, you know, uh, video training, right? Which we're all familiar with. Another is actual sort of gamification of it, right? There's a, actually Google put out a fantastic little quiz a phishing quiz, right? Where it asks you 10, essentially look at 10 different things and figure out which one, uh, which are phishing schemes, which ones aren't. And I've, I've failed it before. <laughs> this, is, this is what I did full time for years. Um, and then also some of the services will actually send out phishing emails, fake phishing emails to your customers to help them see in real life, like what is, what does this look like in real life and, and what should I do? Um, so you know, I get I get phishing emails every day that I flag for Google Workspace to help them kind of be able to monitor this stuff. I think I think we all do. It's um, but if you're new to the work uh, workforce, if you're new to a company or a sector, maybe you haven't right. And so it's important as a as a manager to really be ahead of that and and help train. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for providing some of those advices. Um, advice I do see 
corporation doing a, a lot of random email within their teams on a weekly, you know, on a regular basis, just to see who is going to click and so to make sure they have the right training. You know, some goes to the extreme where the the employees have been trained and still clicking on those links, and unfortunately they end up losing their jobs. And I want to make sure people are aware that, you know, putting a company into risk may actually, partly when you have the training, can put also your role into jeopardy. You mentioned, you know, multi-factor authenticators and you mentioned the keys. Are there other things we, we can think about, you know, when we think about tools and techniques which could we could actually deploy to protect ourselves. For example, I use for sure on my mobile phone, my face, right? Face ID, uh, double, I mean, multiple authentication definitely um, is another uh, method, the keys. Is there any other things people can think about? Because even though the keys are very, very cheap, actually, by the way, people, they are not expensive, those keys. Um, are there other things we should be considering? Absolutely. Um... You know, one of the one of the, the the number one things we all need to be doing is when we get the annoying notification on our phone or on our browser to to the updates available that you need to you need to close your tabs, you need to close things out and install them. Uh, just I think it was this month, uh, Apple's released two or three critical updates that include um, patches for zero day, mm-hmm. you know, vulnerabilities. Right, so this is important. You know, this is important work. We some of these some of these zero days that are being um, found are what they or referred to as uh, no click or zero zero touch mm-hmm. uh, vulnerabilities. Meaning, literally, they can just send you a message on your phone and they immediately have it have access to it. Right. So, we are all the weakest link in our organization when it comes to cybersecurity. I mean, from a leadership standpoint, we're all, we're all also the strongest link. Right. Like, I I, I sort of. I believe that uh, you know an organization is nothing without its people, but the fact is we are also um, the biggest vulnerability from a cybersecurity standpoint. So we all have to take responsibility to uh, to update our devices, to be obviously cognizant and and, and thoughtful about what we click on, uh, to not overshare right documents, not overshare um, any files, right? To not save things on our desktop that we shouldn't save, right? Like the, the list goes on. Now we all sort of know what good hygiene looks like from a cybersecurity standpoint, and so that personal responsibility is key. And that's why, to your to your point, right? Somebody who's a repeat offender of cybersecurity best practices is a serious vulnerability to your organization, and you have to at a certain, a certain point ask the question of, you know, is the risk too too big? Absolutely. I mean, we talked a lot about big companies, actually, Terrence. How can we help small enterprises, you know, small companies to boost their cybersecurity and their security posture in general? What would be your recommendation? You already provided a lot of recommendation, but is there anything smaller businesses should do even more? Yeah, so I I think as a small business, the tools have gotten so great in the last few years. It's almost easier to, to lock down your network because if you don't have a network, if, you, if everyone's sort of remote or they're all connecting via um, you know, via Wi-Fi, right? And everything's in the cloud. It's actually, I would argue, a lot easier. The number one thing you can do to, as a small business to lock everything down is require use of a Yubico key like this, right? Um, to your point, they cost $20. <clears throat> if you get the, the micro key that sits in the side of your computer and you don't have to take out, that's, I think it's $30, right? So as an organization, 
invest in these keys, get one into every person's hand, and then lock down the system. There's a settings that allow you to make it so no one can access their computer without the key. And I think the way it works is you have to like re-authenticate that key to touch that key every like week or 30 days or something like that, right? But um, that that allows you to benefit from world-class security that only like some of the biggest enterprises are using like Google. Yeah. And, and Google figured this out, right? They learned the hard way that the only way to really lock things down is through this philosophy called zero trust. And zero trust starts with the user and starts with some of these keys. So um, I think it's actually pretty easy. It means you, every every system is locked down at its core with a key. And then uh, depending on your business and what you're doing, right? If you're in real estate and you're, and you're looking at like, you know, moving large amounts of money between clients or between banks, you have to be, set up some protocols for your own people as well around verification of identity and other stuff, right? But the first step is a lot, make sure their computers are locked down. Yeah, more than ever, you know, I've seen so many emails from banks, even from LinkedIn around, you know, being careful with password, making sure there are 12 to 15, uh, you know, length characters, uh, because people are becoming more and more sophisticated in accessing uh, this data and making sure you have the double authentication and finding other ways to protect your ID and your IP as well. My my next question uh, for you, uh, actually, Terence, is uh, when you look at what you are doing at the Dream Factory, you know, how do you scale? You know, it's still a young company and you are doing amazing work around API. So what is your future? You know, what is your plan around scaling the business? Who are you working with uh, on a daily basis? How are you making this transformation for uh, businesses around the globe and where actually around the globe? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So we are we are um, a global company, right? We've got customers from across uh, across Asia, across Europe, um, and across the United States, of course. Um, Dream Factory is really interesting because it is actually a self-hosted tool, right? It actually sits within the customer's environment. It sits behind their firewall. Um, and so just like we saw this massive migration to the cloud um, a few years ago, and, and you still see you know cloud cloud adoption. You do see some organizations saying, you know what, I, I want sort of a hybrid cloud environment. I want to have some data in my own data center behind my own firewall and some within the cloud. And, and Dream Factory, whether it's in the cloud or whether it's uh, sort of traditional on-prem, like it, it sits within your own environment. It's not this traditional kind of SaaS platform. So that means a few things. It means I don't need a 24-7 team to, to manage an environment. So I can be much more deliberate with my with my team, with my staff. And, and, uh, and so we're focused very heavily on the, uh, working closely with customers. Uh, we really pride the, our customer support. We pride our ability to, to, to work really closely with them via email or Zoom or whatever and get them set up and running quickly. We are um, we're in the process of building, right? So we we just rebuilt the back end of the application. We're rebuilding the front end right now. We're going to be launching that next month. And so a lot of really exciting stuff around new features and new um, new upgrades to, to the platform there. Um, and then like I mentioned, I believe there's very specific sectors where Dream Factory as an API generation solution makes a lot of sense. One is um, in large organizations like banks, like insurance companies, where you got, have a diverse set of technology spanning years or decades, and you're looking at, um, at connecting all that in a way that's secure and seamless, right? And you don't have a ton of engineers to throw at the problem. 
Um, and then other is public sector, which mm -hmm. has, a, has a similar problem, right? They've got years of different types of technology and they're look, looking to integrate it. So that's, that's sort of the key. Yeah, I mean, the legacy, you know, um, as you know, I'm in insurance. So um, it's, a, it's a business which has been transforming itself, reinventing itself. But it's also a, a business which is uh, full of legacy because it's grown through M&A. And so really understanding how the technology is going to shape the future of my industry is fascinating to me. But also seeing um, the top players embracing technology and actually building tech enable strategies which allow them to be relevant resilient but um you know present in their customers life whether it's big companies or small individual like us uh, on a regular basis so if you could give you know big companies and small companies uh, one piece of advice what would that be uh, one piece of advice um it would be to um to, to realize that your most valuable asset across your entire business is not just your people, more specifically how your people spend their time. Mm -hmm. As a leader in an organization, the most important decision you make every day, every week, every month is 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 how you direct their time. Yeah. And and, and, and to be sorry, to be diligent and sort of responsible with, with the way you do that. <laughs> No problem. And I was thinking as you were speaking, Terrence, I was thinking, okay, you know, we are addressing ourselves to, to big enterprise and small ones, but also, you know, what would be the advice you would give to, to people who may be passionate about entering your area, API, cybersecurity, and build a career out of it? Um, yeah, so cybersecurity is an interesting field because you know there's some some courses and, and master's programs that are that are, have evolved over the last few years, and I think there's a lot of value there. But what I would encourage people to do is is find um, find a a way they can contribute today, even in a really small way, and use it as a way to get into the conversation, into the room, and to figure out is this right for me? Yeah, and then what do I want to do next? Because you don't know until you're kind of in immersed in a subject whether or not you actually really enjoy it, and uh, and and yeah, and you know I started at Google as an executive assistant, right? Um, I I spent seven years in the Navy, and I like to joke I went from managing a, the global watch floor at uh, Naval Criminal Investigative Service NCIS. Uh, as a as a sort of senior watch officer, I went from from managing that watch forward to managing calendars at Google, and it was a very humbling experience. Um, but it was exactly what I needed, right? Mm -hmm. That time allowed me to get my feet on the ground and figure out is this where I want to be. Um, figured out allowed me to figure out what's this new language and this culture and how do people communicate, right? Um, and it, and it gave me time to figure out what do I want to do next. And so I took that time. And I actually taught myself some coding. I started automating tools. I I learned as much as I could about the entire Google organization. And then from that, I made the jump into cybersecurity. So I think young people, and I was this way as well, really eager, really excited. They want to run as fast as they can and get to that exciting place, right? But don't forget, like the journey is is the adventure, and uh, and. You can't blame people for not trusting somebody with no experience right out of the gate, right? So you got to start somewhere. Um, it, it does require some humility, 
Um, it does require sometimes to um, to be the fly on the wall and yes. to not be the, the center of attention and to just listen and to absorb, right? And, uh, you know, I wish somebody uh, had told me that when I was 18 because <laughs> I spent a long time worried about how I wasn't moving faster, worried about why I wasn't getting promoted faster. And, um, and it's just, it's a waste of your time and energy, right? When you can just be happy and curious and trying to figure things out, right. And, and figure out what's next. We, we, we have, uh, we have exciting, we all have exciting careers ahead of us. Right. And so it's important to take our time and enjoy the, enjoy the, the wise process. world. I mean, I love the wisdom of your words, actually, Terrence, um, the humility and also it's absolutely commendable. But yes, I found a lot of my colleagues being in a hurry to be at the top without having all the skills, you know, the depth and the breadth to actually uh, take uh, those roles. And we, I can only be there on the journey to help them. But actually, even I, when I reflect, when I was a student, you know, and I love learning, you know, moving into the work um, environment uh, and uh, doing what I'm doing, Today, I'm fortunate I can do and learn every day. But once upon a time, you know, working for big companies, you say you had to ask them, why did I was, why was I such in a hurry to get out of school and university? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly the way I feel. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, those first few years I was in the Navy, I was on the ship. I was living in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, right? I, in retrospect, I had one of the greatest jobs I'll ever have, right? On a ship exploring the world, leading the small team. And I was so eager to get off the, get off the ship and do bigger things. Right. And, uh, it's just, you know, I think that's just the reality of youth. <laughs> yes. But, the reality of youth. So Terrence, where can we find you? If people want to get old of you, what should they do? So I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, I try not to be too active, <laughs> But uh, I'm not really active on on anywhere else. Um, but you can get a hold of me there, or just on, on dream, at dreamfactor.com. Uh, reach out to my team, and, and you can get a hold of me. Um, so yeah, I uh, as you can sort of tell, I've got a diverse set of of hobbies and um, and interests, right? So reach out if you want to chat. Absolutely. Well, Terence, thank you very much for joining me on Scouting for Growth. Such a great conversation. I'm sure that our listeners are going to devour and really enjoy learning from you. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Of course. Thank you, Sabine. If you like this podcast, subscribe now, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed it, please give it a five-star review. Also, if you want to cover any specific subject with me, contact me on Instagram under Sabine VDL Officials or LinkedIn under Sabine Van der Linden. Thank you.